Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if you just heard Dolly raised her voice. By the way, it's good to have Dolly back. I haven't had too many people, except Debbie, interrupt me during my, uh, <laughs> my messages lately. So now Dolly's back, and I've got a couple more, so that's, uh, that's good. <laughs> Dolly said, you sure haven't gotten very far in my absence. <laughs> Dolly's been sick for two weeks. <clears throat> yeah, we're still in chapter 12. Though. <clears throat> so, okay, so we're in chapter 12, and we're going to go from verses 15 through 30. And let me remind you that the opposition to Jesus' ministry is mounting by the religious leaders. And uh, as a result, Jesus has to be careful how he ministers out in public because they're out to get him. We saw that last week. We ended in verse 14 of Matthew 12. It says, The Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. So with that understanding, verse 15 makes sense. And it says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. He, he avoids the danger and uh, he moves on. Not because he's afraid, uh, but because it's not his time uh, to face death, to go to trial and face death. And so he doesn't want to have this public confrontation with these people at this time. And then verse 15 says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. These are the masses of common people who are following the miracles. Now you have to realize when it says they followed him, it doesn't mean they're believers. It doesn't mean this is a mass of disciples. These are people who are following the miracles, and uh, they don't know quite. They don't know what to make of Jesus yet. But these miracles are pretty exciting. So then, in verse sixteen, it says, "Yet he warned them not to make him known, not to make his whereabouts known." Why? Because up in verse fourteen, the Pharisees are plotting to kill him, and he does not want his whereabouts to be known. And uh, he doesn't want them to know what he's doing. So then we see in verse 17 a purpose statement. You see it opens up with the word that. And this gives us the reason or the purpose why he does not want himself to be known. Okay? And it says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And so Notice that these words in verse 17 are Matthew's explanation. He is explaining to us why Jesus wanted to avoid uh, public contact with the Pharisees if possible and not to continue in that dangerous mode of ministry where they were, had access to him. So Matthew is going to explain this. And what he does, he said, all this Jesus said that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. And then from verses 17 down to verse 21, you'll notice that this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. If you have a footnote in your Bible, you'll see that is the text. This is the longest Old Testament quote found in the book of Matthew. Okay, So this is Matthew's explanation of why Jesus says what he says. Don't let anybody know where I am. Okay, So he's going to point back to the Old Testament. So look what it says. 
Here's what Isaiah the prophet said. And this is God speaking through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. And so what Matthew does is he takes his Old Testament prophecy and he says it points to Jesus. And God calls Jesus two things. He calls him my servant, notice the my in there, and my beloved, which means my beloved son. Okay. So here, the beloved son means that he is God's Messiah. That's what that phrase is. It's a title. But he's a Messiah of a different kind. He's going to be a Messiah that serves. A king who serves, which is very rare because kings don't serve. People serve kings. But this is a king who serves. So he's a kingly servant. Uh, Jesus does not want his whereabouts known. He does not want people to start bragging on his miracles because he's not out there to receive recognition. He is out there mainly to serve. And then God speaks through Isaiah the prophet in verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him. Did God put his spirit upon Jesus? Yes, at his baptism. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. There was a voice from heaven. He said, this is my beloved what? Son in whom I'm well pleased. So that was a fulfillment of this thing. The Spirit comes upon Jesus. He's going to operate through the power of the Holy Spirit. He not only will represent God, He's not only God's Son who represents Him, He's empowered by God to do what He does. So notice, it goes on to say, He will declare justice to who? The Gentiles. Wait a second. Now we're getting a real clue into why Jesus doesn't want his whereabouts known. He has to reach somebody else other than the Jews. Guess who he has to reach? It's not time for him to die yet. It's not time for him to get arrested yet. He has another mission. He has to reach the Gentiles, declare justice, righteousness to the Gentiles. His mission is far bigger than just a Jewish mission. To the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. So, here you see two things. Number one, what God does. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. Then you see what Jesus does. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. So his mission extends beyond Israel. Does that make sense? You see how Matthew is using an Old Testament scripture to explain Jesus' actions? That's what he's trying to do. Now look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out. His purpose isn't to be debating the Pharisees in the streets, uh, combating the Pharisees in the streets. That's not what he wants. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It uh, means he's not going to be putting on public displays. He's not trying to be boisterous. He's not loud. He's not braggadocious. He doesn't seek public attention. He uh, doesn't seek public recognition. Unlike a lot of preachers, modern day preachers, who want public recognition. They want to combat the politicians. They want to challenge this person and that person. They want to make themselves a name. Uh, Jesus is totally the opposite. He says, don't even tell them where I'm going. Don't tell them what I'm doing. Uh, this is between me and you and me and God. This is the mission I'm sent on. He has this servant attitude, not this arrogant attitude. Verse 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break, 
Now think about that for a second. And a smoking flax he will not quench. So look at that first phrase. A bruised reed he will not break. Uh, it's talking about people who are broken, people who are hurting, people who have been bruised, people who are psychologically bruised, people who are physically uh, hurting. Uh, Jesus is gentle with these people. If you want to know what Jesus is like, this explains what he's like when he's around sick people, when he's around hurting people. He's very gentle. He's kind. Uh, he, he doesn't dash their hopes. Notice the smoking flax. He will not quench. They come there with hopes. Fire in their heart. Maybe he'll heal me. He doesn't throw water on it. He doesn't treat them rough. And he doesn't dash their hopes. Unlike a lot of healers who will bop you right on the head. Don't they? You ever see those guys? Big, loud mouth boppers. And then the people walk away disappointed. Their hopes are dashed. That's not how Jesus is. That's why it says he healed them all. <laughs> no one walked away disappointed. And he was kind. Uh, these are little insights. If you want to know Jesus' personality and how he ministered, you can sense that. Uh, he will continue to minister that way until he sends forth justice to victory. Uh, this will go on all the way to the end of his ministry. When he dies on the cross, justice is proclaimed, victory is won, and he's resurrected. And in his name, look at verse 21. Gentiles will trust him. It's the second time that Gentiles are mentioned. Very significant that Matthew chooses this passage because this passage has special significance to his audience because remember, we said Matthew is writing a generation after these facts take place. After these events take place. These events are taking place somewhere around 30 A.D. Matthew's writing a generation later. And he's writing to a group of people that consist of Jews and Gentiles, probably north in the area of Syria. Can you imagine that? You know what's going on in Syria. This is Matthew's audience. And these are Jews and Gentiles in churches up there, and he's writing to these people. And the Jewish believers' relatives are saying, Don't have anything to do with those Gentiles! Hey, Jesus came to reach Gentiles, didn't he? This is a word that would encourage him to keep on doing what they're doing and continuing to be in this fellowship, Jews and Gentiles in Messiah, in the region of, of uh, Syria. Okay? So, in a sense, Matthew's audience up north that includes Gentiles, is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus came to reach the Gentiles, and it says the Gentiles will trust in him, and Matthew's audience, the Gentile people in Matthew's audience, have indeed trusted in him. Now, I just showed you right there in verses 15 through 21, how just knowing the background, the history, the context of events makes all the difference in understanding the text, doesn't it? So that's why it's important that we read these verses in context, in uh, context of other verses, and in historical context. That's how it makes sense. Now we come to the second part of the passage that we're dealing with, and we see an example of Jesus' healing. So now we're going to see, see an example of it. And uh, we're going to uh, see the reactions to his healings. Okay, so look at verse 22. Then one was brought to him 
who was demon-possessed, blind, couldn't see, mute, couldn't speak, and he healed him. Did you ever notice that when Jesus heals people, it usually just says that he healed them? Last week we saw he just healed a guy with the word. Didn't even touch him on the Sabbath. Remember, remember that? Uh, you see how Jesus does things. He just, just healed him. Didn't make a big deal out of it. See? And it goes on and says, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. Now you get the reaction. First of all, the reaction from the crowd. Look at verse 23. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Question mark. Tells you they're not disciples yet. Still questioning. But notice what they said. It says they were all amazed. Very interesting word. It's only used two other times in Matthew. And it means to be mad. Not mad in the sense that you're angry, but in the sense that you're out of your mind. <laughs> you've gone mad. When the miracles occur, these people go out of their minds. They say, wow, I can't believe it. They just react with this unbelievable uh, astonishment that Jesus has healed this guy. Uh, they go wild in a sense. Like wild people who are out of their minds. You know, They start jumping up and down. It just blows their mind. And they ask this question. Now in our English Bible it says, could this be the son of David? In the Greek it's actually in the negative. And it says something like this. This couldn't be the son of David, could it? And uh, it shows you they're not decided yet. Uh, they're still thinking about it. And this is going to be very important because they're still thinking about it. And the answer is either, yeah, I don't think so, or perhaps he is. Remember, son of David means king, right? This is the Messiah. So uh, they are starting to wonder, could this be the Messiah? Well, why would they think that? Because passages in the Old Testament talk about when Messiah comes, will be this blind will he be, be uh, will see, and the deaf will speak, hear and speak, and so forth. So, verse twenty-four, we've got um, the reaction of the Pharisees. So we have the reaction of the crowd; it blows their mind. The reaction of the Pharisees in verse twenty-four. Now, when the Pharisees heard it. Notice, they get the report second hand. You see that? They are not there when it happens. Uh, they just get the... They hear about it. Now, remember what Jesus said back in 16? What did he say? They're not to make him, make him known. Don't tell anybody where he is or what he's doing. But guess what? There's a leak. There's a wiki leak. Okay, or whatever kind of leak it is. <laughs> and there's this leak, and the word gets back to the Pharisees what Jesus is doing. Now, you know, they're not happy troopers, right? So, look what it says. They said, this fellow, and I believe they come, and you'll see this, they come and check it out. When they find out where he is, they show up, and here's the reaction. They say, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the rulers of demons. Okay, now, it's very interesting that they don't deny the miracle. It's obvious the man can speak <laughs> before he couldn't, and he can see him before he couldn't. They do not deny the miracle. What they do is they deny that the source of the miracle is God. 
Now, what did Isaiah the prophet say the source of the miracle was? God said, I'll put my what on it? Spirit on it. What do they say? They say, no, it comes from Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Now, it's interesting to me, which is, means his miracles are demonic. He's a sorcerer. He's a magician, if you want to use those words. Now, I want you to notice that they do not speak directly to Jesus. <laughs> this is a great one. I'm not sure who they're talking to, but they're probably talking to the crowd because notice the words, this fellow. <laughs> they're not speaking to Jesus, they're speaking about Jesus. So, uh, but Jesus is there. Have you ever been in a room where someone's talking about you and you're right there in the room? So uh, they're saying, this fellow doesn't cast out demons. Now look what it says, verse 25. I don't know exactly where Jesus was. He may have been 100 yards away or 10 yards away, but it says in verse 25, but Jesus knew their thoughts. So he not only probably heard what they were saying, but they're building a case to kill him. This is a capital crime to prophesy or operate under the power of demons. Jesus knows their thoughts. And so he speaks to them. He chimes in. He speaks directly to them. And look what he says. See, it says he spoke to them. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every kingdom, not some, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Now, think what's happening in Syria. There's civil war. And you see the news at night? What those buildings look like? What those, what's happening over there? 3,000 people have been killed already. It's disastrous. Here's a nation, a kingdom that's being brought to desolation. It's weakened. It's on the verge of collapse. That happens to every nation. What happened to America when the Civil War? We're still, we're still reeling from the American Civil War in this country. You may not realize it, but we are. That's how long it takes to overcome Civil War. It is disastrous and it affects every nation when there's civil war, there is destruction. There is disaster. There, the nation is on the verge of collapse. And then look what he said. And every city and every house divided against itself cannot stand. Notice he goes from kingdom, you see that? The bigger. The city, the local. Look at this. The house to a family. From a kingdom, to a city, to a family. What happens when there are riots in the city? You ever seen riots in the city? If you weren't, have never been in the middle of them, you've at least seen it on television, haven't you? <laughs> Bombing of buildings, burning of buildings, riots in the streets, people fighting, cops shooting, National Guard coming in. That's just in America. You know what it's like when it happens in other countries? Chaos. What happens when there's fighting in a family? That's what happens when there's fighting in the city. What happened in Watts, California? You know what happened. The, basically, the whole area was destroyed. What happens when there's fighting in a family? Does it destroy the family? When there's a divorce? Yes, the family's destroyed. It doesn't matter whether it's a kingdom. It doesn't matter whether it's a city. It doesn't matter whether it's a family. Whether it's an international level, national level, local level, or personal level, this is 
the result. So Jesus says, they're saying, ah, you're casting out demons by Beelzebub, the king of demons. And Jesus said, well, every kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And here's his conclusion in verse 26. Conclusion number one. Look at this. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And the answer is what? It can't. It won't stand. If you're saying that I'm casting out Satan's messengers by the power of Satan, his kingdom is fighting against itself. It can't stand. So what he's doing is he's showing how inadequate their answer is, their explanation of the miracle is. It doesn't make sense. Jesus is showing it doesn't make sense. Conclusion number two. And if I cast out demons, verse 27, by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? You can't have it both ways. You can't say I'm casting demons out by Satan, but they're casting them out by God. There's no way that you can have it both ways. If I'm doing it by Satan, guess what? They're doing it by Satan. You can't have it both ways. Therefore, he says in verse 27, they shall be your judges. Uh, you, does it make sense what you're saying? It's not logical what you're saying. And now his third conclusion. But, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now this is the key verse in the whole passage. The word if in each one of these passages can also be translated since. If or since. It doesn't matter how you do it. They say he does it by Satan. If verse 26 says uh, this, since Satan cast out Satan, his kingdom is divided. That could be, could be that way. Verse 27, since I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do your sons cast out demons? It could be either be since or if. It means basically the same thing. And now verse 28, but if or since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in this key passage, there are several things I want you to notice. Okay, Number one, the kingdom has arrived already. You see what he says? If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God, what? Has come. Not will come. Has come. Already. It's arrived. The kingdom of God has invaded Satan's territory. Okay? The kingdom hasn't arrived in its fullness. That's not going to be into the future. But it's begun. It's started. It has arrived. Number two. I want you to notice in verse 28 that the kingdom the arrival of the kingdom is linked to the spirit. See that? The arrival of the kingdom is linked to the spirit. We always think that the some people, theologians usually say, wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom. And that's just not a true statement. Wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom. No, the truth of the matter is, wherever what? The spirit is, there is the kingdom. 
Jesus lived for 30 years and he didn't do any of these kinds of things. Remember that? It wasn't until he was baptized and the Spirit came upon him, the end time kingdom Spirit came upon him in a significant way, that he begins to do these things. So wherever the Spirit is, that's where the kingdom is. That's why on the day of Pentecost, God pours out his what? Spirit. See? And so we're living now in the age of the Spirit. See? Uh, we call it the church age, but it's really the age of the Spirit. So notice that Spirit and kingdom are linked together. Next thing I want you to notice is that there are two kingdoms mentioned here. You see that? Look at verse 26. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will, look, his kingdom, there's Satan's kingdom mentioned here. And then in verse 28, notice, surely, the kingdom of God. There's God's kingdom. There are two kingdoms. There is Satan's kingdom, and there's God's kingdom. Those are the two kingdoms that the Bible recognizes. And this is where we make so many mistakes. Christians make so many mistakes. We divide the human race into two kingdoms, but here's how we do it. There are the civil kingdoms, governments, what we call the secular kingdoms, and then there's God's kingdom, right? The spiritual. The way we say it in America, there's a separation between church and state. Two kingdoms. There's the secular and there's the spiritual. The Bible never recognizes it. That is a false dichotomy. Every kingdom in the Bible is spiritual. Don't ever think that the kingdom's not spiritual. There are powers that are working in kingdoms. Satan's behind the throne of a lot of kingdoms. Don't kid yourself. The way the Bible divides kingdoms is this. There is Satan's kingdom and there is God's kingdom. That's the two kingdoms. Originally, there was just God's kingdom. God creates Adam and Eve. He gives them rule, tells them to take dominion over the earth. Rule on his behalf. The whole world was his kingdom. Then guess who comes in? A little slimy, slicky serpent speaks to Adam and Eve and they obey him. He usurps their power. And from that time on, people who have been running things have been listening to this other voice. To the point that the whole world was evil. Every government, everybody was listening to Satan's voice and God had to destroy the world. And then he recreates the world and he gives the same commandment to Noah. He says, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and take dominion over it again. A second time God establishes his kingdom. And guess what Noah does? Gets drunk the first night and everything goes haywire, doesn't it? Gets so bad that everyone's listening to this other voice and God has to scatter them and give them different languages and from that He chooses one man. Now, the whole world is not... No one's following God. No one. They're all following Satan. Every single person. He pulls out one man from Ur of Chaldee, some guy from Iraq named Abraham. And God speaks to him and Abraham now. Here's God's voice. 
One man on earth who hears God's voice. Everybody else is listening to this other voice running their own little kingdoms. Two kingdoms, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. Christ comes through the power of the Holy Spirit and he starts taking back territory that Satan has grabbed. And every time Christ exercises a demon, Satan's kingdom contracts and God's kingdom expands. And that's what you see happening here. And he does that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this in verse 29. How can a man, can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then will he plunder the house. Somebody breaks into Jim Lang's house, strapping man six foot five strong, He's a little guy. How is he going to steal the stuff in his house? Guess what he'd have to do? He'd have to tie him up. He has to have a gun tie him up. And then once he has him tied up, guess what he can do? Take it off. Well, that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes in and he binds Satan. Every time he exercises the spirit, Satan is bound a little bit more. We know from the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, Dead Sea Scrolls were just discovered in the 1940s. People didn't realize what life was like back in Bible times amongst the Jews until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. We've learned now from the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Jews believed that before the kingdom of God came on earth, Satan had to be bound. And guess what? Jesus is binding him right now. You see this? Every time he cast out a demon, he's binding. He's robbing Satan of what Satan claims is his. And so... And we know that in the book of Revelation, the Bible says at the end of the Revelation, what happens? Satan is bound, and then what comes on the earth? Kingdom comes on the earth. It follows the same structure as the as you see in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, guess what? The binding has already started. Satan hasn't been totally bound yet. He will one day. But it's already starting. Does that make sense? Jesus has bound the strong man. And then finally in verse 30, we see his bottom line, his challenge to us and the people of his day. And think about this for Matthew's audience as well. <clears throat> he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather, bring in with me, scatters abroad. So either you're inside the kingdom or you're outside the kingdom. Either you're with Jesus and you're gathering people into the kingdom or you're against Jesus and you're scattering them outside the kingdom. The Pharisees, guess what they're doing? Scattering against. You, you're with, and you're gathering. Notice that there's no middle ground here. Did you notice that? It's a sense like, like William Travis who drew the line in the sand. Jesus is now drawing a line in the sand. And he says either you're with me or you're against me. It's only two options. No middle ground. 
can't sit on the fence, and you have to make a choice. Notice how Jesus is making, drawing that line. Where is that red line, Netanyahu says? Where is the red line? Here's the red line, Jesus says, right here. Either you're with me or you're against me, and you're going to have to make a choice. With Matthew's audience, here are Jews ready to bolt, go back into Judaism and reject Jesus. You do that, guess what? You're not with me. See, so Jesus is laying out this scenario. Either we live for Jesus or we drive people away from Jesus. We're going to see that he's going to relate this next passage, and I didn't feel I had time, but it's connected to this section that we dealt with called the unpardonable sin. And I just want to read it to you so that you can see the context of it. And then we'll deal with it next week. Therefore, so here's the bottom line here. You want to know, you want to know what the, uh, the end game is? Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Jesus was operating by the Spirit, and they were saying he was what? Doing it by Beelzebub. You see that? Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit... It will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. That's the passage we'll deal with next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a very uh, interesting passage of Scripture that oftentimes uh, becomes jumbled in our minds. We can't work it out. We can't see the outline. And hopefully we were able to, to do that today. And we, we get a sense of what kind of person Jesus was. And He is our example. He's the way we should be living. We should be gentle. We should be kind in dealing with people. We should be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, help us to be more like Jesus. In His name we pray.